Good morning, everyone. This is actually a bit of a bit of a later morning. I would normally do this a little bit earlier, but I had multiple meetings and things to do this morning, and I, I try to like alternate these updates. So I do one sort of in my morning, and then one in my afternoon, and I just go backwards and forwards this way uh, week by week. Uh, and, the, and the schedule I'm on at the moment means I need to do it this morning so that I can do next week's later in the day. Speaking of next week's, and I did tweet about this a little bit earlier on. So next week. By popular demand, I'm going to do it with Charlotte as well. A bunch of people were asking, uh, what has the transition been like for Charlotte to go from a, uh, a Mac to a PC? The transition for me, for her going from Mac to PC, has actually been very good. So hopefully she will she'll echo that. And then uh, we're going to have Scott Helm join us as well. So that seems to be popular every time Scott's there. I'm not sure if it's popular because of Scott or it's popular because people like seeing the, the banter we have. Either way, it doesn't matter. Scott will be there. So we're going to do that next week a little bit later on, and I'll give more notice about that in advance as well. So first things first, uh, over here. <laughs> in fact, first thing first, just seen people joining in here. Gavin. So Gavin is from uh, from NZ. G'day, Gavin. Brendan from... Uh, from Victoria. Normally I'd be on work placement, but whoops, snap lockdown in Victoria. So for the overseas viewers, uh, Victoria has suddenly had a lockdown beginning midnight last night. Everyone's got to go home and stay home, including my mate Lars Clint down there who had to make a mad dash back from his holiday yesterday back to home. We have had our mask mandate here in Queensland, most of Queensland, and we're in the bit which is the most of Queensland. <laughs> For another week, we're meant to be clear of masks at 6 a.m. this morning. We, we're not locked down, but we've got to put the masks on when we're out and doing the things uh, for another week, which is really no biggie. Uh, and then, of course, Sydney uh, is having lots of lockdowns at the moment, a little bit of a mess there. So hoping it all, uh, all clears up for folks in the southern states. And in a week from now, I can be mask free like I am now anyway. Um, look, we're very fortunate here because uh, I guess Australia in general is a big place. Uh, a lot of people compared to places like Europe and a lot of Asia live in houses rather than apartments for so lower density living. Here, it really doesn't change much for us. I mean, I must spend, I don't know, like 15, 20 minutes a week with a mask on because it's just like when I go into a shop to pick up some bread or something like that. So we do get away with it uh, pretty lightly and we are exceptionally fortunate. Now, on to other things, sponsor. Sponsor this week is Aptrana. Aptrana ranks number one on customer experience in 2021. Gartner Peer Insights, voice of the customer. WAF, it's the only vendor with a 100% recommendation, which, uh, which is important because there are a lot of vendors out there pitching their things. So to have a good, good recommendation for the Aptrana, for good recommendation, 100%, can't get better than 100% for Aptrana is great. Aptrana is made by Indus Face. So thank you very much for those folks for uh, sponsoring my blog this week and allowing me to stay home, which of course I don't have much option other than to stay home, but to stay home and to do the things that, that I do. So Aptrana from Indus Face, thank you for this week's sponsorship. Now, jumping into other things, I do actually have something very specific I wanted to cover today because it was literally just on my tweets from earlier on, and it's about Chrome and changes to HTTPS. So we're going to kick straight off with this cyber stuff this week, and then I will come back to some of the IoT things later, as I have been prone to do lately. So Chrome and HTTPS. Now, this is interesting, and we have been on this sort of march towards HTTPS for quite some time, and there have been various levers used to drive us in this direction. Uh, so for example, the 
visual iconography. Uh, you used to get the padlock if your connection was secure. So only connection is secure. It doesn't mean the website's secure. The padlock was a good thing. We'd tell people to look for the website, uh, or look for the padlock rather, on the website, the padlock in the browser loading the website. And this was good, and it gave people more confidence. And then over time, the browser visual indicators started flagging non-HTTPS contact or content rather as are not secure. Now, there are good and bad things to all of this. It's it's good to see incentive for organisations to want to go HTTPS. The bit that's been not quite as good is that the meaning of the padlock and the meaning of not secure is lost on 90% plus of people. And it can be a little bit misleading. And there's also, I know Scott has said in the past, he said it's almost like, and I'm sure he meant no offense to Tim Berners-Lee with this, but it's almost like there was a design flaw in the internet where we started out non-secure and we've just spent like really the last 30 years, almost 30 years of the web now, trying to actually patch over that problem. But we are getting there. So bit by bit. Now, here's what's uh, come out from Chrome. This is a couple of days. This is a Chrome team. Now, just before I read this, because then I'll talk about one of the Twitter discussions I've been having. I've met a bunch of people from the Chrome team back when I used to be able to travel. I've done talks at the same events. And regardless of what you think of Google or what you think of big companies or this sort of thing, these are really, really super smart, very, very nice people as well who put huge amounts of research into this, uh, huge amounts of focus group time into this. These are not decisions made lightly. And in fact, if you have a read of Chrome's announcements here, they talk about testing things. And I've seen cases before where some people in my workshop would be on a beta program unknowingly, but basically they're they're crash test dummies, <laughs> where they're seeing things that other people don't, and Chrome are collecting metrics on how these changes actually uh, affect user behavior. So these are very evidence-based decisions. I don't think they always get it right first go. We've seen them roll back some stuff. Remember the time when they dropped the www very quickly and then decided to roll it back quickly, or the path after the URL and rolled that back, and then over time those things are kind of dropped off anyway. So they don't always get it right first go, but there's a huge amount of research that goes into it. And I just, I preface what I'm about to say with that because I put a lot of weight in posts like this because I know they're very research-based. So increasing HTTPS adoption, this is the post. What they're saying is beginning in M94 for Chrome. Now, to be honest, Chrome, uh, Chrome iterates so frequently that I lose touch on where we're actually at and what version of Chrome we're even on at the moment. But in a in a very soon to come version of Chrome, so we are at, I was on 91, now it's updating because of course every time you open your browser it updates. So I think from memory Chrome's on like about a six week release cycle as well. If I relaunch Chrome now, which I don't wanna do because I'm not sure how much of this would break. Uh, Maybe we've been a new version. But anyway, very soon, let's say within the next few months of Chrome. Beginning in M94, Chrome will offer HTTPS first mode, which will attempt to upgrade all page loads to HTTPS and display a full page warning before loading sites that don't support it. Users who enable this mode, so my <laughs> first key there, this is something that you're going to need to enable. Users who enable this mode gain confidence that Chrome is connecting them to sites over HTTPS whenever possible and that they will see a warning before connecting to sites over HTTP. Now, 
Scott and I have been speaking a lot about this for years, saying that ultimately this is the direction we'll be going, where secure becomes the default position and non-secure requires user interaction. Now, this is almost sort of the inverse of before, where if you go back, I mean, think about the early days. Think about IE6. And I know that in the scheme, well, I was going to say in the scheme of things, that's not early days. We're probably halfway through the history of the World Wide Web at IE6 era. Even less, because that was early 2000s, wasn't it? Jeez. Anywho, <laughs> it's been around for a long time, but we got no visual indicators whatsoever on non-secure sites. We would get a padlock on secure sites, and I seem to recall early versions of IE would even prompt you uh, before accepting a certificate. So what we're sort of doing now is starting to invert that, where we're going, look, there's so much secure connectivity at the moment, and I know they spoke about 90% here, some of here go. Thankfully, HTTPS adoption has come a long way in recent years, and most operating systems now see 90% plus of page loads over HTTPS in Chrome. So when you've got 90% plus of the web behaving a certain way, do you need to call it out? So do you need to have the visual indicator anymore? Do you need to tell people you're making a connection that is secure and there's a padlock? Remember, it used to be green and it used to say secure. Do you need to do any of that or do you just say nothing because what you're doing now is normal? And then conversely, do you start to proactively flag things that are abnormal because non-HTTPS connections are now abnormal? And this is really where they're going. They're like, look, we're going to connect our HTTPS. If we can't, we're going to let you know that something is, I was going to say not quite right, <laughs> but for some people, this is still by design. That's another story. It's in my tweet thread. Uh, we're going to say that something's not quite secure. Are you sure you want to proceed? Now, they're also talking here, they're going to experiment with the lock item. As we approach an HTTPS first future, we're also re-examining the lock icon that browsers typically show when a site loads over HTTPS. In particular, our research indicates that users often associate this icon with a site being trustworthy. Now, this is one of the big problems, and this is where all the messaging around things like extended validation certificates was so screwy. People see the padlock and they're like, I can trust that site. Now, that's not what it means. It's never meant that. The communication around this has been wrong. I'll give you some good examples of this. Uh, I used to, back when I used to go places and do presentations, as opposed to stay here and do presentations, I'll give an example of Barclays Bank. Now, Barclays Bank a few years ago was running an ad that said, look for the padlock icon so that you know it's safe. Now, the Advertising Standards Authority in the UK had them pull that ad because it was misleading, because the padlock icon has got nothing to do with trust. Part of the reason for this is that particularly as we got to the point of certificates being free and ubiquitous, thank you, Let's Encrypt, and Cloudflare and Bypass and other CAs that have come and done similar things, because it became so ubiquitous, everybody could get a padlock icon. So just because you see a padlock icon doesn't mean you can trust the site. You could be making a secure connection to the devil. So we had to stop that messaging. And, and this was where EV went wrong because EV was like, well, if you see an EV certificate, no one knows what an EV certificate is anyway. If you see an EV certificate, you know you can trust the site. Well, no, you don't because of the aforementioned no one knowing what it is. And secondly, you can be untrustworthy and get an EV certificate as well. There are ways of doing that. It's just a higher barrier to entry. So this whole thing about it implying trust is bad. Saying secure was misleading. The padlock icon is misleading. There are legacy reasons for it. We need to move beyond that. Chrome will run an experiment in M93, the one before, M94, that replaces the lock in the address bar with a more neutral 
entry point to page info example below and the example below is just example.com and there's no icon there's a little drop down where you can then inspect the certificate and you can get info about the page but there's no longer a padlock icon so that's good now very interestingly here i'm reading this on blog.chromium.com in uh m90 what did we decide it was m91 of chrome i can see the padlock icon now one of the people I saw talk uh, about iconography in Chrome at a conference was, uh, I think it was Emily Stark, and it was at LocoMocoSec in Hawaii in the middle of 2018. And she did a really, really fascinating talk. It's on YouTube, you can find it, where she was like, okay, like you room full of security people, uh, here are four different URLs. Which one is the Chrome blog? And one of them's like, blog.chromium.com and one of them's like google.blog and no, no, two other things and everyone's looking at gun ah i got no idea like unless you're probably part of the chrome team you've got no idea and i just remember that looking at it here and, and that the point we're making here is that we can't read urls and actually figure out if, if we're in the right place or not we certainly can't trust the padlock icon anymore ev never worked like this this is still a problem, but it's it's not a problem that we solve with iconography. <laughs> We're going to have to deal with this in other ways later on. Now, moving on, and this is where I think uh, some people are getting a bit cranky. Protecting users on the HTTP web. While we are excited to see users adopt HTTPS first mode in the future versions of Chrome, HTTP connections will still continue to be supported, which is the first important thing. This is not killing HTTP. And I've already had some degree of mind losing on Twitter that it will be killing HTTP. It's not killing HTTP. HTTP will still work. You can still go to your shitty insecure sites all you want. It will still work. It doesn't stop that. Chrome will take additional steps to protect and inform users whenever they're using insecure connections. Now, this is sort of where it gets a bit more interesting because inevitably what we're going to see is more overt visual... It's a cracked record. I've been saying this for years. We will see more overtly visual warnings that the connection is insecure that's because the connection is insecure <laughs> this is just feels like such a simple thing you will have to click through the warning and acknowledge it and initially this will be something that you opt into and then over time i'm confident that this will become the default they also go on to say uh, continuing from our past efforts to restrict new features to secure origins and deprecate powerful features and insecure origins, so things like uh, GPS APIs, uh, I don't think you can get geolocation unless it's over an HTTPS connection at the moment, will evaluate a broad set of web platform features to determine if they should be limited or restricted on HTTP web pages, which again seems quite reasonable. There is certain information which transferred over an insecure connection and open to interception can be much more invasive of your privacy than other things. And all of this is happening very incrementally and it's happening with a lot of lead time as well. Now, let's get to the bit that kind of bugged me a bit. These are public tweets. <laughs> so I can, I can look at it and name them. So. You'll see this if you look at my tweet replies just now. So someone uh, quote tweeted my thread on this earlier today. It was only two hours ago. And they said, Chrome's continued push into TLS or bust is reasonable on the surface, stupid after any basic thought. Sigh. Here's Kevin. Kevin's sighing. Kevin's not happy. <laughs> so I replied to, to Kevin on this and I said, what's the basic, but what's the basic, 
Straight up. I can type it, I just can't say it. What's the basic thought you've been able to apply that the Chrome team is unaware of? Now, what he said here is the open web, well, all of it's open web. The open web doesn't require TLS for every single thing. There may be other useful parts of the non-open web culture we're killing by rendering non-TLS features useless. That's my issue. Breaking non-TLS is too far. The, but this is the problem, Kevin. Like we're not, it's not breaking HTTP. You can still do HTTP. Now, in the immediate term, there's absolutely no change to it at all. And in the more medium term, it's simply going to say, you, this is not a secure connection. Are you sure you want to continue? Now, yes, there are going to be some features that are broken, but we're talking about things that put privacy at risk. And again, you've got this massive lead time to get this right. This is what I, this is what I struggle with. Um, now, what else is in here? Uh, actually, the, the earlier point, uh, where else were we? Da, 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 da. <sighs> so, he seems to think that supported is going to mean five clicks, solving a capture and doing three jumping jacks, as an example, in order to get past it. But again, like this is not what's been indicated at all. And what we're seeing here, HTTP connections will still continue to be supported and Chrome will take additional steps to protect users and inform users whenever they're using insecure connections. Now, in fairness as well, Chrome has used a very generic term, take additional steps. And they're obviously leaving some wiggle room here for the way they might implement it. That was another update here. I think you and others asserting that all non-TLS is a risk is generally what's missing the point. Just because all name want to do something doesn't make it good or right. Because I sort of said, look, isn't it interesting that multiple browser vendors are all doing the same thing unilaterally at the same time? It's almost as though everyone's come to the same conclusions. So he thinks that maybe that's not good. <laughs> but this, this is what gets me, the, the assertion that you and others asserting that all non-TLS is a risk is generally what's missing the point, but it's not. And here's the problem. I've got a blog post this, blog post for everything. I wrote a blog post called, Here's Why Your Static Website Needs HTTPS. And I showed all of these examples of when you are making an insecure connection of what you can do by modifying traffic on the wire. Because the defense that's usually leveled here is they'll say, this is just a static website. Nothing happens. You don't put your credit card into it or your passwords. Therefore, it doesn't need TLS. Well, that's just working on the basis of confidentiality. That's not working on the basis of integrity because HTTPS gives you integrity as well. And once you can start modifying traffic, then you can start to do a lot of nasty stuff. So that's what that blog post shows. And I was reminded of this just recently after I took over the CoinHive domain. And we found that there are still a whole bunch of compromised microtech routers which were injecting CoinHive into the traffic flow. But guess what? They can only inject it into HTTP traffic. So now you've got blokes like old mate just here who are like, okay, I want to run my website over HTTP. There's nothing important on it. Yeah, except you're getting CoinHive injected into your user's traffic flow and God knows what else because you can't trust the integrity of the page. But as I've ended up often saying, there are going to be people who don't like this. <laughs> and in the tweet thread today, I linked through to a, a video Scott and I did where we, we did throw a few of them under the bus. Fine, don't like it. It's happening anyway. It's like get on board or be left behind. And I know that that gets to the point of almost coming across a bit obnoxious, but you just run out of energy trying to explain the basic premises of why this is a good thing. And all that energy you're using against it, you could have just put a free certificate on your site and been done with it. 
All right, enough of that. <laughs> what's in the uh, what's in the discussion here? Um, Brendan says, from memory, there's some other formats of browsers refuse to remotely load over HTTP. <clears throat> from memory, you're right. I just can't remember which ones are. Um, Michael says, moving an existing JS API to HTTPS only is a big deal. Michael doesn't say why. So, Michael, if you, if you want to clarify that, an existing JS API to HTTPS only is a big deal. I, I would be interested to hear why that is a problem short of if there are external clients that have a dependency on accessing the HTTP scheme. So do you have hard-coded references to the HTTP scheme? And are you saying if you kill the HTTP scheme altogether, it's going to be problematic? I can see where you're going there. I think a fair way of putting this is that there is a transition path. Uh, now, part one of the transition path would be to offer HTTPS and have both of them available at the same time. Part two, depending on your client, might be to start 301-ing HTTP request to HTTPS. Uh, also implementing things like HSTS with a preload to force all requests to be HTTPS in the beginning uh, is a good start. Now, you've got to have a client that recognizes HSTS. Browsers do. Uh, something like some of my IoT clients are not going to recognize HSTS. They're certainly not going to have preload lists. And then over time... Inevitably, you're going to find the huge, huge, <laughs> larger proportion of traffic is HTTPS to begin with anyway, and you'll get to the point where at some point in time, maybe you can kill the HTTP protocol. But frankly, once you're 301-ing, which is a requirement to HSTS preload anyway, you're going to end up with an extremely small number of requests that aren't issued securely, and they're not going to be by mainstream browsers anyway. Um... Kevin says, I think, I just think Troy perhaps misunderstands what break means. Uh, I assume break means doesn't work anymore. That's, we could Google it, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's where we are. Um, render unusable. And, and I mean, this, this is the, 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 the problem. Um, when we're talking about moving towards HTTPS and flagging HTTP is increasingly dangerous, that doesn't mean stuff doesn't work anymore. It just means more proactively flagging the problem. Now, you can toggle this on with Chrome already, but the, the premise of saying that we are going to gradually deprecate some features from working over HTTPS, such as, um, uh, such as geolocation APIs, I don't have a problem with that. Like if you're running something in this day and age, which is a functional web application, which needs access to geolocation and you're not doing it over HTTPS, I mean, honestly, how much notice have we had on this? There's been enormous amounts of notice. The old legacy stuff, let's say, we'll take Dave Weiner as an example because he's a, an infamous HTTPS anti-vaxxer. If you go to scripting.com, now Dave is absolutely adamant that he will not support HTTPS because it's a Google conspiracy. This is a static website as far as I can tell, it's not using anything which is going to be explicitly broken by virtue of Chrome's move to deprecate features that, that could put people at risk over HTTPS. So if we get to the point where you go scripting.com and there's an interstitial page which says, are you sure you want to go to this page? It's not secure. And you click yes, that's fine. That's not captures. It's not jumping jacks. It's not other things that make this broken in any way. We're simply getting a warning. And in time, Dave will wake up and he will put HTTPS on this site. And all the time he spent whinging about it, he could have done that 10 times over anyway. Okay, moving on. What else did I put on the list here? I tweeted it, didn't I? Uh, Israel. <laughs> Let's just go to something completely non-controversial. 
So, in the push to get more governments onto Have I Been Pwned, it's not even a push, it's probably a pull. Like, I've literally just gone, hey, if you're a government and you would like access to your government domains, send me an email and I'll get you on board. So, as of today, what are we up to? It's like 25 different domains or something. Uh, the Israeli government has become the 25th. So what happens is a government from various corners of the world reach out and they say, hey, we would like to get access, API level, free access to our domains. And I go, yeah, cool, I'm going to write a blog post, here's a draft. Uh, and so long as we, we put that out for transparency's sake so that no one says I'm doing backdoors, then that's fine. We'll put that out there. Now, Israel becomes the 25th government. In my little black Australian cybersecurity book, there is a queue of other ones. I don't think that any of them will be ready for this coming Monday. I've tended to push them out each Monday, uh, but there is a list <laughs> that will come up. And my criteria for that is that it is a national cert or an organization such as the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK or the Australian Cybersecurity Center, ACSC, here in Australia. And so long as you are responsible for the nation's government domains, then that's great, you come on board. Now, all of that has gone fine for the most part. I did get some feedback on the Israeli government from people who were not happy that the Israeli government had access to this. And this was largely for geopolitical reasons. It was uh, Palestinian supporters who were upset that Israel should have access to this. Now, I don't want to delve too much into the politics of this, but there's a, a few sort of important things to be conscious of here. So number one is that I don't go out seeking to, uh, seeking governments and casting my own views as to their political position. Uh, every government on there has reached out to me and asked for access. Number two, every one of these governments gets access to things they have access to already. So Israel, for example, could go and do a domain search for free on Have I Been Pwned if they can demonstrate they own the domain. So they only get things that they have access to already. Nothing changes there at all. And number three, if the Palestinian cert reaches out like the Israeli one did, they get exactly the same thing. From my perspective here, there is no favoritism. And if, if I'm honest, I was a little bit disappointed that that something which is there as a, a free community service to try and improve cybersecurity descended into people uh, casting digital stones, for want of a better term, about their unhappiness about Israeli settlement in Gaza or anything along those lines. So the offer is out there for the Palestinian government or any other government. Well, geez, any other government in the world? I can think of a couple that might be that might be a bit, let's say any government where we don't have like export controls, <laughs> which would actually get me into trouble with the Australian uh, government. Any other government, and I'm sure the Palestinian one would be fine in that regard, uh, to reach out and I'll give you the same level of access as Israel has. <sighs> Boy, that one. Hmm. So, the internet of things being a mess. So, moving back onto this again. And do the IoT thing again. Um, in fact, let's do this. In, in the photo I took that accompanies this video, I was holding up this device here. In fact, I'll show you this device, but it's literally physically plugged into a switch over there. This is an Automate Pulse 2 hub. So in amongst the process of fixing all the leaks in the house and many of the other broken things, one of the other things that was broken and is being restored to original condition is curtains. So this place is about... 
we believe about 14 years since it was renovated. And 14 years seems to be the sweet spot in which things either die or deteriorate to the point where they need replacing. Uh, last year, the fridge died. The dishwasher motor died this year. The zip hot water heater, you know, the one that gives you like cold water and hot water. They have them in a lot of offices. There's one here that died. Uh, many other things have died. The carpet has expired beyond its useful life. The curtains have expired beyond the useful life as well. So as part of getting them replaced, I said, you know, one of the things that would be really cool in places, say, like here, where I'm often in here giving presentations and then I have little buttons like on my stream deck so I can press the button and the lights go and then I press the button and the lights come back again. It would be really cool to, like, automate the curtains that we put up there. So... Uh, this little hub is going to have multiple curtain motors in different rooms, which can be operated via a, a little uh, panel on the wall. So that is a wireless panel, which will communicate directly with the curtain. So no IoT whatsoever. And this continues to support my position that we need kinetic controls to replicate any sort of digital IoT control. And we will also then be able to control them via the Automate Pulse app, on the phone, which I don't really intend to use much, but it does also tie into Home Assistant. So there is a Home Assistant integration. And the thing that I'm actually looking quite forward to, and, and this to me is one of these places where we go, okay, how does IoT make your life better as opposed to just driving you nuts, is that if I can automate that in, then whether it's the office or in the master bedroom, I can just start to automate curtain opening with other things. I could automate it on a schedule. Uh, I would like to get some Shelly i3s, which are not relays, but they can pick up on button clicks behind like a traditional sort of light switch panel. So you can have all the same buttons that you'd have for doing your lights and your fan or whatever else. Click those, and then the i3 automates the opening of the curtains at the same time as it like turns the lights on and does whatever else you want. So I'm looking super forward to that because I think that's going to be one of those really practical things, particularly because we've got a master bedroom with a lot of windows that looks out over the water super cool and the sunrise comes up there and i just think it'd be really nice to be able to like lay there and then push the button and everything opens up so hopefully that lives up to expectation but the complete mess bit so i have spoken about this before in terms of the dramas that i was having with trying to get iot stuff working um in my perfect world things like my IoT lights would all have local control. And I'll, I'll use that as a, a broad term. So for example, I've got a Philips Hue Go there, another Philips Hue Go there, they're the little desktop lights. They have local control because they're Zigbee and they talk to a hub downstairs in the server rack plugged into the Raspberry Pi that runs Home Assistant. So when I want to turn those lights on or off and I press this button, that's why those lights there are immediate. The ones up there, still going. I'll do it again. These ones, immediate, finally done upstairs. Upstairs, up on the roof. The ones in the roof are IP-based. So they have IP addresses. They connect to the Wi-Fi network to the IoT SSID. They are cloud-controlled. So they integrate with Tuya. So when I'm in Home Assistant and I'm saying, hey, turn on or off the Zigbee lights here, bam, because it's just going down to the server cabinet back to here. But when these ones turn off, they go up to the cloud to two years servers in China and then they turn the lights on or off. So that's why you have that latency, which is just fundamentally different. In fact, I can show this to you. If I unplug one of these, which I can because they're battery powered. All right. 
So this shows the problem perfectly, right? Look at, tilt the camera up a bit. Lights on the roof for IP, this one's Zigbee. Ready for this? Oh geez, the contrast is a bit odd. I'll put it here, ready? Zigbee is off. Ones on the roof take slightly longer. Turn it back on, Zigbee is on. Ones on the roof take slightly longer. Now that might seem very minor in terms of how long it takes, but see how they're sequential? Now, have about 40 of those in your house, which is what I've got at the moment. And they all have to go sequentially, and they don't all necessarily go in the order you expect. It's like one over there, and then one there, and then one there, and then one up there. And now it's actually really obvious, and they're all just coming in bit by bit. They all add a lot of broadcast traffic to your network as well. It's something I need to tweak with my network. They are all dependent on the cloud being up. They're all dependent on my internet being up. And this is the mess that we have because these devices do not support any sort of local control and they are completely dependent on Tuya. As someone else said after this particular blog post here, they said the other dependency you have is on that cloud provider still being in business. If they shut down, I can point this back down away from the lights now, if they shut down and they no longer operate, then my lights kind of die. Now this hasn't happened to me yet, but it is feasibly possible. So the, the basic premise of this blog post is to say we really need to see local control of IoT devices. If as an industry we're going to move this forward to the point where it can mature and be truly interoperable, we've got to get local control of devices. Now, fortunately, Tuya, the official Tuya developers on the official Tuya GitHub repository are apparently building this. In fact, Home Assistant tweeted 16 days ago, we had a call with Tuya Smart this morning. They are working on an official Home Assistant integration maintained by them. The beta is already available as a custom component linked to it. It connects their official cloud API, but local access will follow. I really, really hope Tuya does this because these lights are, for all intents and purposes, they're great. They come on and off, they change color, like they do exactly what I want them to do. But this cloud dependency and this latency that gets added and this clunky sort of work around with third-party integrations, which is admirable work by the folks at Home Assistant, but it's hacking around an underlying problem. I would love to see this solved by the likes of Tuya and then hopefully TP-Link and then hopefully guys like Automate Plus 2 as well. I'd love to see them all go, we really should have, as I said in this blog post, a sort of like baseline APIs for local control that integrate with whoever wants to build integrations for them. And in a really, really perfect world, they do what Tuya is allegedly doing here, which is go and build the Home Assistant integration themselves. I struggle to see how this isn't in their best interest. I struggle to see how it's detrimental to them. It's not particularly hard. And then they get to own that piece of the infrastructure. They have to own the official integration or maintain the official integration. I would buy more lights that are Turia enabled. I would tell other people to buy more lights that are Turia enabled. So I really hope this is a, a positive sign. <laughs> I guess time will tell and we'll, uh, we'll judge them based on what they actually end up doing. So let's, uh, let's see if anyone has any questions. Feel free to ask anything about this or other things while I spin through what's here. Um, Daniel says the joys of home ownership. Oh my God. It is fascinating how quickly things escalate out of control. And I think I mentioned before, we, we had a builder come around a couple of months ago with the expectation that he would fix one of the new leaks that had appeared with his silicon gun and then he'd go and it would all be done. 
uh, and it, it turned out that that leak was coming from the bathroom, which is just on the other side of here. You can probably hear the banging there now because the waterproof membrane was broken. And we learned that when a waterproof membrane in a bathroom breaks, you have to demolish, and there's not too strong a word, you have to demolish the bathroom. <laughs> because if you imagine when a, when a place is being built, you've got your frame of your house, uh, you've got all your sheeting that goes onto the walls in the bathroom, and then to some distance up the wall on the whole bottom, the whole thing gets waterproofed such that there is a membrane where everything seals. And if you end up with a hole somewhere in that membrane, you've got to deconstruct everything. So working backwards, it's like you've got to take out all the taps, you've got to take out the bath and the toilet, you've got to take out the vanity, you've got to take all the tiles off the wall. Uh, you've then possibly got to pull back a bunch of the sheeting if you've had water leakage, which has then caused any rot to the frame or anything like that. And then you've got to rebuild everything back up from there. It's massive. And then we found all the other things that were wrong at the same time. Uh, so yes, the joys of home ownership. <sighs> anyway, when it's all done, it will be It'll be nice. <laughs> I'll be able to use my shower again, which will be good. Brendan says, on an unrelated note that no one asked for, I may have run Home Assistant in a Docker container on a secondary computer that I consider my general purpose server. Okay. It might be because of the Intel Celeron series chip on my server, but HA did manage to slow my server right down. I honestly think that the best route forward, I know we can do Docker and virtual machines and that sort of stuff with, with HA, but Raspberry Pis are so cheap. You know, it's like a hundred Aussie dollars or something for a Raspberry Pi. And it's that's the hub of your home automation and you spent a hundred, maybe 120 bucks with a power supply as well. That's that's good value. Good value. Matt says, had broadcast has broadcast packet volume gotten any better with the latest HA update? I heard that it was something they've worked on. So I did take the latest HA update just this morning. I think it was dot two of the July release. I haven't looked much more at it. Uh, I've also got an email sitting here overnight from the folks at Ubiquity that have been helping me troubleshoot some of my issues. Uh, the, the, the challenge that I'm starting to run into is I do have a lot of noise on the APs because I've got something like 150 devices on the network. So just as a test the other day, I realized one of the things that I can do very easily to, to massively reduce the amount of noise is just turn off every Shelly because most of the IoT lights here are behind a Shelly. So I've got a script that just enumerates through all the Shellys and just literally turns everyone off because they have a locally controllable API. So I managed to knock 150 access or 150 IP addresses down to about 100 IP addresses just by, just by one script. I was like, I'll just turn them off for a day. And I certainly saw uh, connectivity improve and become a lot more reliable. And if I'm honest, there's a big part of me which is like, how much would it cost just to replace every one of those IoT lights with a Zigbee light? <laughs> because it, it would take a lot of traffic off the network and it would also solve the local control problem. But I'm not sure that it feels a bit like giving up, doesn't it? Because I'd really like to be able to keep adding IoT things via either protocol, Zigbee or running on 802.11. Um, so I'm going to try some of, uh, some of Ubiquiti's suggestions as well before I kind of give up on that one. But, yeah, broadcast packet volume, I've got to bring down. Joel says, I remember one time when I was in JB Hi-Fi, a couple wanted a smart switch for uh, for a modern, for a modern, for a modem. So they turn off at night. Uh, so I'm not, not sure if there's something else coming there, there Joel, but I think the, the thing is there. Um, I find it fascinating to see 
normals, not people like us, but normals, you know, people like my mum and dad go, hey, we would like to have something IoT in the house. And, And part of the point that I was making this blog post over here is that we're sort of reaching this stage now where you, you end up with all of these different individual, often competing platforms. So last week I was talking about this is the um, uh, the controller for the underfloor heating uh, that's going into the bathroom. And it's like, all right, so this is a place where you're going to schedule that. And then there's somewhere else where you schedule the other things and something else where you schedule the other things. And this is only getting worse and worse and worse and worse as internet connectivity becomes cheaper and people expect more from their devices. So I really think Home Assistant is in there at the right time and what we need is for these other IoT manufacturers to start playing nice and trying to enable central control because this is just becoming an absolute, frankly, clusterfuck of different devices spread all over the place with different administration facilities and different ways of interacting with them. Brendan says, quoting me, RPIs are so cheap, only 100 Aussie dollars. Um... I'm not sure if you're disagreeing with that or agreeing with that. I think for what it does, considering that that is basically the, that is cheaper than like one Philips Hue light. So I think that that's pretty well priced when it's the thing that controls your entire IoT world. I'm not sure if you're you're agreeing or disagreeing there. Jane says, my home assistant blue finally arrived. Chip shortages are real. Okay. Brendan, also phone is currently going haywire with teachers scheduling meetings on Teams. Yeah, of course, everything's a bit crazy at the moment. James, I suspect Joel's point was it would be very hard for it to turn it back on if the Wi-Fi is turned off, if it's IoT on the cloud. And I think we sort of come back to a point here about um, how useful are IoT devices when there is no I, right? Like when that internet is not there, how useful are they? And I've written before in the the five-part IoT series I did about having complementary kinetic controls to digital controls. So I want my mum and dad to still be able to use the light switch. Now, I I had a a realisation just before. I I mentioned I did update the latest Home Assistant version this morning. And I did it just before I was about to start a presentation here. And it was a presentation where I I didn't actually want these lights on. Sometimes I do try to be a bit more serious. Now, (laughs) I realised I had a problem because I'm pushing the button there, which normally does exactly what you saw them do before but it wasn't working. And I'm like, oh yeah, Home Assistant is updating. But all of those lights there are toggled on and off in the light. And then at the wall over there, there's a Shelly and the Shelly is set in an edge, a detached switch mode. Now, I nearly said edge switch. An edge switch, every time you flick it, it changes the state of the power. So it literally turns off the power, that would have killed this. But when it's set as a detached switch, it always maintains power up there and all it does is it raises an event in Home Assistant. I then catch that event and I tell each one of these lights to turn off internally. So what I realized is that because that was still running as a detached switch, no matter how many times I flicked it, Home Assistant wasn't listening to the events and I couldn't change the lights. And I'm thinking, am I going to be able to get my pink and blue lights turned off before I have to have this meeting where I need to look serious? <laughs> you know, like I didn't know if I was going to be able to do that. So that, that is still a problem where we, we do create a lot of dependencies. And now, in fact, for that reason, in my repaired bathroom uh, and also in our master, I have decided not to have any IoT lights whatsoever. I will have Shelleys. I'll have Shelly dimmers on every single switch. 
I will have a Shelly on things like the heated tower rail so that you can control when it comes on and off by schedule. But I'm not going to have any IoT lights because I want to make sure that even if I unplug the Raspberry Pi and there's no home assistant, Charlotte or I can still go to a switch, press the switch, and it works fine. It will literally turn the power off to the circuit that runs the light. So my view of this now is to take a bit of a balanced approach. It's like, look, in my office where I do the cyber things or in the kids' room where they're mucking around with lights, fine, no problems. In a place that just really needs to be peaceful and relaxing and no matter how much shit goes wrong with my IoT stuff, I can still go in there and stuff still works. I'm going to do things differently. That's the theory. Other questions here. Uh, Child says, if you were to do it again, would you use Zigbee lights rather than IP-based ones? So, so the answer to that is pr probably yes. Reason why, there's a few reasons why. Um, I am getting a lot of stuff on the network, as I mentioned before. I'm getting uh, a very high degree of utilization on access points. So this would solve that problem. It would also mean that I could easily extend out greater distances without actually having to put access points in places. Now, don't get me wrong, look, I've got a lot of ubiquity access points because they've sent me a lot of them. They, they do send me stuff for free very often, which I've mentioned not to gloat about, but to be transparent. But they need mains power, right? Well, they either need mains power or ideally you want to POE them. So you want to have Cat5, Cat6 running to them. But a Zigbee light, I've got something like 25 at the front of the house. They plug into sockets up in the roof. I know it's a strange concept for people, particularly from overseas, but we literally have the normal socket that you'd have on the wall here secreted up in the cavity of the roof. And if you want to change the light, you just take it out and push another one in. Now, we got those fitted on all of these lights when we pulled out a bunch of the old halogens, which are absolute rubbish for various reasons. And instead, we, end, uh, we, we put in all these um, updated ones. So we literally had the Sparky electrician go and chop off the old 240 to 12-volt transformers, put in a plug socket, and now we just plug the lights in. So I could go to every single one of those lights, unplug them, plug these back in. Point being is that if they were all Zigbee, then my Zigbee network would expend, extend even further. And then little things like this, which are battery-powered Zigbee devices, would have better coverage. So I think that's a good idea. Um, I would get that local control straight away as well. And, and if, if I'm honest, child, who asked the question, I have started doing the mental arithmetic. <laughs> if, if I was to just go and replace all those lights with the Zigbee-based ones, how much would it cost me? And I think it might cost about $1,000, which, which is not to be sneezed at, but in the scope of the money I've had to spend on this house lately for all sorts of other things, I kind of feel like $1,000 may not be that bad. This is 1000 Australian dollars too, which is going to be more like... You know, let's call it 700, 800 US dollars. But if I was to do it again, on the balance of evidence, yes, I would do it with Zigbee. I have found the Zigbee stuff super stable, super reliable. Um, so Brendan's like, yes, when we put the cost of Raspberry Pi in context of IoT devices, it's cheap. Um, Michael says, the worst is living in a condo, which has a high voltage HVAC system and I have zero options for IoT control of my AC. You don't have zero options because you probably have a button somewhere. So some of you may have seen this before, but I really wanted to connect my AC. In fact, I really feel like turning it on right now because it's, it's the middle of winter, but it's 22 degrees Celsius outside and it's getting warm in here. 
It's 26 degrees in my office. Um, I really wanted to control mine via IoT, mostly because when I'm laying in bed, if I wake up at night and I'm either cold or hot, I want to be able to turn it on or off. It has no IR, so I couldn't get an IR blaster. I can't, even though this is a house, we own it, we could like put another system in. Uh, short of replacing massive amounts of stuff that's very expensive, I can't retrofit the new panels, but it does have a button. So I 3D printed a frame that would hold a SwitchBot, and the SwitchBot has a little arm, comes out and does this. Go to Twitter, search for my name and SwitchBot, and you'll see how to do that. So you, you can very, very clunkily still IoT your air conditioner. Brendan says, when you're a teenager such as myself, whom is still too lazy to get a job, it's kind of... Yeah, like if you don't work, mate, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's going to be expensive. Uh, that, that is true. Um, what else have we got in here? James says, with automated blinds, electricity supply becomes as much a factor as internet. We had a power outage, which meant the blinds were unopenable. They have no ability to open manually. That is actually an interesting point. Now, uh, fortunately, it is extremely rare for us to have an unplanned electricity outage. We've had one that I can think of in recent years, which was only about six weeks ago, where something blew up at a, at a power plant in Queensland and, and took a whole bunch of places offline. Having said that, the impact, if we were not able to open curtains for a short period of time, is very, very low. That, that really wouldn't bother me too much, particularly when you consider that that means you don't have power at all. So stuff like this, I couldn't be doing anyway. Um, so that, that doesn't particularly concern me, if I'm honest. Mitch says, I think the IKEA blinds have a battery pack in them. Haven't tried though. Now, okay, battery packs solve that problem, but of course they create another problem, which is that now you've got to maintain uh, the batteries. Now, because we're drilling holes and everything anyway as part of all these repairs, I'm just looking at my, my bulkhead up there. Um, we did actually run power to, to each section here. So we've got enough roof cavity space that the Sparky could get up in the roof, crawl over, drill a hole, then pull through a cable, wire it back into mains. But one of your challenges is you've got to get power. Now, this again is why I really like Zigbee devices like this, because there's got a battery that lasts for two years. I can put it wherever I want in the house. Job done, no problems. But yeah, when you have to start running power, that's when things just seem to get exponentially harder really quickly. James says, uh, my office is Zigbee color lights. The rest is planned with the Renault's as dumb lights with smart switches. Yep. Now look, the, I guess the exception to this is that do you want to change, for example, colors in lights? Because as soon as you want to change colors, you're going to need more intelligence than just flicking a circuit on or off or changing the voltage to dim them. I like the fact that I can change colors on the front and the back of my house. We get a lot of pleasure out of this. It's good fun. My daughter had a birthday party a week ago. We just made everything like pink and blue, and it was hilarious. It was really good fun. I don't need to do that <laughs> in my bedroom or my ensuite. The only thing I want to be able to do is change brightness. And I do want to be able to change brightness digitally because I want to do stuff like I will put another one of those little motion sensors. I'll probably put it like under the vanity. And then if you walk in, at certain times of the day, say at night, then we're just gonna very dimly turn on, there's gonna be an LED strip under the vanity and another little little light at the bottom of the toilet. So you'll have enough light to go to the toilet and that will be turned on digitally with very dim light. But then you might go, look, if you're doing your, not for me obviously, but if Charlotte is doing her makeup, <laughs> then let's make the lights brighter. 
So I do want dimming, but I don't need IoT for that. Can you hear that? The amount of bashing in this house. This is happening here. Uh, James, I think my other solution is to put, uh, to put the circuit, the blinds are on through a solar battery with the UPS. That, that does start to sound like a lot of work for what I would imagine is the edge case of the power being out and needing to open the curtains, if I'm honest. But maybe that's just me. Michael says, my HVAC has a touchscreen panel, but maybe I could get a little rubber thing but it might block other controls. You do start to go down the rabbit hole, Michael. The immediate um, thing that came to mind is I remember years ago, uh, I think it was in South Korea, but people were trying to figure out like how do you use your iPhone, I think it was as iPhones started becoming big, when you're wearing gloves, and they're using like sausages <laughs> to use the capacitive touch kind of stuff on the screen. So I suspect, have a look at the SwitchBot stuff. The SwitchBot community is really good there's a switchbot uh switchbot uh, facebook page which is quite active and people come out with all sorts of ideas so you might find the answer on there but i suspect you'll find a hacky kind of way of doing it and it, look it, it is kind of fun to solve problems like that if i'm honest james is interested what so, uh what slide curtains you go with was actually looking at two your wi-fi slide curtains uh but au certified Still looking for not an IoT device. So I'm not sure what the motors are, but Pulse 2 is the company, Automate Pulse 2. So if we do a Google search for Automate Pulse 2, uh, automateshades.com is the website. And I'm quite sure that they do the motors that communicate to the hubs. Uh, so that's, that's the direction we're going. I'll know how decent that is probably within the next week i hope michael says california has had a few too many power outages lately but at least the networking gear is easy enough to keep running so for for power outages i have a uh, an eaton uh, floor mounted ups just here with enough stuff plugged into it that i still have basically i still have the screen um what else do i still have the pc itself obviously a couple of other things enough still running such that if, if the power goes out and then it comes back five ten minutes later i think i can get about 15 minutes out of it everything's okay but i couldn't really keep doing this because i lose some screens and things like that and then down in the server rack i've got another uh, rack mounted eaton ups that has the home assistant raspberry pi the um uh pie hole <laughs> i was trying to find the word the pie hole for dns resolution it has, uh, I've got some uh, some NASs plugged into there. I've also got all the network equipment there. I've got a switch, I've got the UPS, I've got the Unify Protect. And of course, because most of the access points around here are PoE, they then get power from the switch, which is on the UPS. And what else was in there? Something else in there. Uh, oh, the, the modem for my MBN. So if I completely lose power to the house, I still have internet and I can get about half an hour out of that. So I've got enough lead time to be able to shut stuff down and i have tested it many times recently as we've had electricians here continually turning off the power in order to install things so that seems to work pretty well uh <laughs> brendan bashing in the background made me think there was chaos occurring all the way over here oh my god the amount of bashing it's not the amount of bashing it's the amount of dust that is everywhere because there's been so much tile cutting 
So I, I'm a little bit over all of that at the moment, if I'm honest. But look, I'm going to draw it to a close there, folks. Like I said, next week I'm going to do this uh, with Charlotte and Scott Helm as well. Charlotte will be here with me. Scott, of course, is in the UK, so we'll, we'll do the Zoom thing with that. We are going to do it, I believe, about uh, eight hours later than now. It is going to be good fun. I'm going to promote this one a little bit more and actually make sure we do it on time. Uh, so please join them. We're going to talk about Charlotte's transition from a Mac to PC. And I'm sure there'll be many other things out there as well. Um, Charlotte and Scott and I have all been very good friends for many, many years, long before we were much more than good friends. Just Charlotte and I, that is. So, uh, so yeah, we, we, we have a good bit of banter and we'll see how that goes as well. Something different. Thanks for watching, folks. I shall see you next week.